Hello. Welcome to my podcast. Post-Imperial China. This is episode six. Unity. Last time I talked about the decline of the Beiyang government. The decade of the 20s saw the rise of the nationalists. Russia played a large role, both for influence and for money, encouraging anti-Western sentiment and promoting socialism and communism. We learned that the nationalists were a collection of groups two most prominent were the Guomindang and the Communist, or CCP. The body that I call collectively the Nationalist, their primary objective was the unification of China. Secondarily, although probably not less importantly, they wanted to get rid of or cast out the foreign influence and the foreign interference that had plagued China for a long, long time. Finally, we learned about the northern expeditions by the nationalists, led by Chiang Kai-shek. His goal was to defeat and upend the various warlords in the pursuit of unification. He accomplished that, and that ended the 12-year life of the First Republic of China, or the Beiyang government, or the warlord period. In this episode, I want to focus on the new nationalist government, headquartered at Nanjing, led by the Guomindang, their conditions, circumstances, and challenges it faced. The nominal inauguration of the Nationalists or the Nanjing government was April 18, 1927. There was still work to do to further consolidate the Nationalist unification. After late 1928, China's future seemed bright. There was a lot of optimism. The nationalists had destroyed the corrupt and feckless Peking government, and now a new government was in place, led by patriotic, educated men. Confidence abounded that these men knew China's social, culture, and economic problems, and they would offer and implement programs and systems to help the nation. The new government enjoyed public confidence. The Guomindang had learned to govern better. They were more cohesive 
and they were prepared. They had created their own military, modern and well-equipped, and had its own leadership. The new, ostensible leader, the 41-year-old Chiang Kai-shek, was largely respected and admired. He had shown leadership, perseverance, determination, and capability during the Nationalist Revolutionary Campaign. He seemed to be the right man at the right time. There's always a but, though, isn't there? And the reality of China at the beginning of 1929 was that no group or party or person would have an easy, uncomplicated task. Seventy years or more of unequal treaties, repeated humiliations from foreign nations, poor leadership, and the casting off of thousands of years of imperial rule had left a stain. A stain that was not merely going to fade in an instance. Also, let us not forget Japan, its imperialistic and colonizational goals and purposes had not diminished. Japan still aggressively sought to enhance and protect its economic domination and geopolitical stakes in China. The reality was that great challenges faced the Nanjing government. To be successful, she had to reverse a century of disintegration. The reality was China had no real economic system. The reality was the moral community, or the national zeitgeist, had eroded, was corrupt, bankrupt. Its erosion, the causes I have referred to many times. Finally, Occupying Peking in June of 1928, the nationalists achieved their goal of unification. It should be noted, however, that despite the nationalist unification expeditions, there were large parts of China that were untouched and still ruled by warlords. Nevertheless, contemporaries then considered the nationalist takeover the dawn of a new era in China. The reality was that within six months of the capture of Peking, by early 1929, the bloom was off the rose. Since Sun Yat-sen's death in 1925, there had been a bloody and violent feud for leadership of the Kuomintang. The internecine feuds only intensified as it became clear the nationalists were on the verge of accomplishing their goals. The reality was by the time the Nanjing government was born, the nationalists were in disarray. Indeed, there existed at least two nationalist groups at that time. The right Guomindang, led by the centrist Chiang Kai-shek, in Nanjing, and the left Guomindang, 
allied then with the communists, and they were located in Hankou. These were some of the realities faced by the Nanjing government. Oddly, Chiang Kai-shek only had an outside chance of becoming the recognized leader of the nationalist government. Three months after establishing the new government in Nanjing, Chiang Kai-shek's renowned military force lost to a warlord army near Peking. The near route almost led the warlord to occupy Peking. Nearly as damaging, Chiang Kai-shek's image was now tarnished and he was forced from power and retired. Meanwhile, the left Guomindang finally purged itself for the communists in its ranks. For a while, the two wings of the Guomindang had rid themselves of the troublemaking communists. The purge led to a reconciliation between the right and the left Guomindang. It was that unified party that established the nationalist government at Nanjing. The new government, however, was no more stable than its predecessors. The two most powerful leaders of the nationalist movement were Chiang Kai-shek and Wang Jingwei, or also called Jingwei, the leader of the left Guomindang, then at Wuhan, China. Both these men were excluded from the new government. By 1928, the unified alliance that had established a new government in Nanjing fell apart. Chiang Kai-shek, after about five months in retirement, returned to office, more powerful than before. In February, he was named chairman of the Central Committee and the executive of the Guomindang and the commander-in-chief of the army. In October, he became the chief executive or prime minister of the new government. Chiang Kai-shek controlled all three legs of the nationalist triad of power, head of state, party, and military. What Chiang Kai-shek had quickly done was transform the Nanjing government into a military dictatorship. Since the Guomindang's origins by Sun Yat-sen, it had been a diverse organization and scattered ideological goals. Prior to Chiang Kai-shek's rise in power, the nationalist movement had never been a cohesive, ideological, unified, and tightly disciplined political party. It has been accurately stated that before the mid-1920s, the Guomindang was never more than a loose confederation of an organization, not really a political party. Sun Yat-sen's mistake seems to have been that he let anyone into the organization. Many had no ideological tie with Sun Yat-sen or his core political principles. You can easily see the impact that Chiang Kai-shek made. He immediately started to scrutinize members, and he rejected the undesirables. He began to focus more on quality membership than quantity. That effort 
toward ideological purity altered fundamentally the nationalist movement. The purity effort first manifested when Chiang Kai-shek purged the communist from the nationalist during the Northern Expedition. Next, he went after the left Guomindang members. While they were formidable foes in the early years of the Nanjing government, he managed to suppress the opposition after about two years. Many of his foes, Chiang Kai-shek's foes, that is, protested his dictatorial-like control, his increased strong-arm tactics and influence peddling ever more consolidated his power. There is little question Chiang Kai-shek used his military in a large way. In 1929, more than one half of the members of the Guomindang were soldiers, not civilians. With his victory over the left Guomindang, Chiang Kai-shek solidified his power in Nanjing. We already learned that the communists had been chased out of the Guomindang, viewed, after that, as an enemy of the Guomindang. The CCP, however, was not down and out. They were committed as ever before to start the second stage of the revolution. The CCP had numerous problems facing it. One was their numbers. At the time, at the end of the 1920 decade, the CCP probably had fewer than 10,000 members. Many of the CCP's early leaders and iconoclasts from the May 4, 1919 revolution had either been executed, died naturally, or from nationalist battles with their warlords, or they had withdrawn from the party out of discouragement or just geographically were too scattered throughout the country. Some of them, however, did manage to travel to Moscow in 1928 to attend the 6th Congress of the CCP. After that 6th Congress, the CCP adopted a new platform, abolish private land ownership, confiscate foreign property, implement radical social reforms, and urged the Chinese to abandon the Guomindang. Another reality the CCP faced was it had to survive in China with a hostile government. The CCP also wanted to break away from its Russian influence. Like the Guomindang, the CCP had learned how to survive, drive its message, and recruit members. The CCP still had young, vigorous leadership, capable, and with many friends. It knew how to start and run a revolution. By 1929, the nationalist flag flew over the whole of China. For many places in China, they have been truly unified since 1916. Part of the reunification plan of China by the nationalists was to subsume the various warlords 
along with their armies, and into the nationalist government. During the nationalist revolutionary movement, they had cajoled and bribed some warlords into recognizing the nationalists' authority. It was time to call in those arrangements, which meant the warlords forever losing their stature and power. The warlords had been given special regional political authority by the nationalists. Chiang Kai-shek wanted those eliminated. There was also a practical reason for this. The nationalists' military strength, which included the warlord armies, totaled at least 2 million men. It was an extraordinary financial burden on the new government, one that was not entirely necessary now that the kinetic war had ended. Nevertheless, the reductions or consolidations, whatever you wish to call them, did not sit well with these warlords. This erupted in hot wars in early 1929 as revolts of these warlords spread. Some of the warlords joined forces in the disputes, having maybe as many as 500,000 men armies. Chiang Kai-shek, however, either easily defeated them or bribed the others. The revolts continued through 1930. In one of them, Chiang Kai-shek was forced from power for about six weeks. The revolts in Manchuria were particularly nasty, damaging and threatening to the Nanjing government. The persistence of the revolts caused a new split again in the Guomindang. One of the coalitions, in open protest to the power that Chiang Kai-shek wielded, so bad that a hot war was a real threat between these Guomindang coalitions. The several coalitions might have gone to war against each other, except for one thing. Japan. In my next episode, the focus will be on the economic and geopolitical conditions facing the Far East and at the start of the 1930s. I provide this as a backdrop to the events that occurred in Manchuria in the early 1930s. Japan's aggression in the Mukden incident would forever change the trajectory of events in China, the Far East, and the world. Thank you. It has been a pleasure. <laughs>